0: So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All
1: right, folks, we are keeping this year of gratitude going. So my heartfelt gratitude to... Robert Taz123 for her review, maybe his review, I don't know, their review of personal and informative. Been following this podcast for a while and happy to have found easy to consume and information while feeling like Michelle and her guest are in my living room with me. Keep up the great work and keep the content coming. Y'all, I got to be honest, this one I recorded at the kitchen table and I legit, they, we were talking about like Isaac Newton and like the principles of movement and they were like, stand up. And so there I was at the kitchen table trying to stand up, but like my leg fell asleep. So Robert Taz 193 or 123, thank you for your review, for inviting me into your living room. Please know y'all were in my kitchen watching me hobble, skip and realize just how old this 40 year old woman is. So huzzah for incoming physical therapy lessons. Thanks y'all. Enjoy. All right, everybody. Today, oh my gosh, I am like giddy. We've already spent 15 minutes chit-chatting before we even got started. I've spilled a glass of water on my face and was late because my lovely Botox lady and I, Dr. Waddell, I highly recommend her, Palmetto Aesthetics, her and I got busy chit-chatting and these lovely ladies humored all of my faux pas and extended grace. So thank you so very much (laughs) for the grace. Our guests today are actually, we kind of talked about them ever so briefly and the phenomenal work that they do because of Kyler Romeo. So back last summer, so like almost a year ago, Kyler was on and she was talking about some new NICU recommendations and guidelines and, and all of this phenomenal information. And she mentioned something called the Perception Action Approach. And I was like, what are the words that you're using? Because I work in, you know, Colombia, and I've never heard of the perception action approach. So she put me in contact with our guests today. So to begin with, I have Charlene Fregosi, PTC slash PAA instructor, and she's promised to translate all of those lovely things for us. And Charlene graduated from Pacific University in Oregon, and she has experience in NICU, PICU, and ped's hospital beds. She is a currently employed with Tucson Medical Center, and she has her NDT certification. That's on my to-do list. They have an SLP, one of those, and she is actually a PA Approach Certified Instructor, which is fantastic because. Y'all, this is what we do. We talk about interprofessional education. We learn about what our colleagues and other roles are doing so that we can better implement interprofessional practice. And our other guest today is an SLP. So we have Eileen Sperling, and she's a licensed SLP in the New York area. And she's one of the founding members of the nonprofit organization Institute for Perception Action Approach. They have a beautiful website. I did scope that out. So please go take a peek. And there's also a Facebook page and an Instagram account. She has done this for years and can talk to us about what the perception action approach is and how it can be used in speech language and feeding intervention. So... Eileen and Charlene, thank you so very much for coming today. Please introduce yourselves and tell us how this beautiful thing came to be. Well, thank you for
2: having us, and thank you, Kyler, who was also one of the founding members of the Institute for Perception Action. As I am, and she works here in Tucson. I see her occasionally, and but she's always on the run. But we thank her for introducing us. And I'm a physical therapist. I was certified in NDT, but that has lapsed since I have found a paradigm shift in my thinking and my treating, and we give credit to that organization for bringing us along from just a purely orthopedic approach to treatment of children with motor di- disorders to recognizing that there's a nervous system also involved, and then perception action has kind of grown from there. I've been a physical therapist for th- about 39 years. I started my journey towards physical being a physical therapist by almost drowning. I <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> almost drowned. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and I was in a lake with my mother and her friend. My mother couldn't swim and my friend and I couldn't swim. And my friend and I were bouncing around out on, on the lake on in an inner tube. You know, these are the days where there were no car seats and you know, you drank from the hose and all that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, I fell off the inner tube. And my friend's mother came out and rescued me. And my parents promptly put me in swimming lessons, which I was terrified of, and cried and was sick to my stomach every night. And, you know, but I had to learn to swim since I survived the near drowning. And that led me to swimming competitively, teaching swimming, teaching lifeguarding. And it led me to A man who said, you know, I've got this friend and his little boy, his grandson has cerebral palsy and he wants someone to get him in the water, not teach him how to swim, but get him in the water. And I was my 16 or 17 year old self said, sure, I can do anything, you know. So (laughs) I got this child in the water and realized very quickly that I'd never experienced a body like this and the grandfather said, well, you should talk to his physical therapist. And I said, well, what's a physical therapist? And so that was my journey to find out even what physical therapy was. I liked, I enjoyed working with children. And so to have this combination of of movement and activity and children and just really resonated with me. So that's how I became a physical therapist. And I've worked in a number of settings. I've worked with adults. I've worked with colleagues all along. I've worked in rehab and ortho, but you know, my love has been pediatrics and that's what I've done. I was a pediatric certified specialist. I let that lapse during COVID, which I shouldn't have, but I was 65 and I thought, well maybe I'll retire and now I'm almost 68 and and I haven't retired and I probably should have done it and, and we'll do it again. But but that's that's been my journey. And then I'll let Eileen speak and then we can talk about how we got introduced to perception action.
3: Okay. Okay, Well, thank you, Michelle, for having me here also and Charlene. There's some things I didn't know about your stories. (laughs) So I'm a speech language pathologist. I've been working also over 40 years. I actually entered graduate school as a major in Spanish because I wanted to be an interpreter for the UN. And somehow in there, I became a speech major. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with it, but my first job was working with children in a special needs preschool, and we had a director of the program who believed in a transdisciplinary model. And as such, I was on a team with PT and OT, and I had to learn some of the goals and the techniques from the OT and PT and include them in my speech practice. And I found that I really enjoyed working with the body, working with positioning, working with the kids. And then as luck would have it, I had a supervisor who came from one of the Milwaukee Children's Center who was trained in NDT. And watching her work with children with feeding issues, speech issues, watching her position, watching her handle, I just knew I had to do it. So I did go for NDT training. I became an NDT certified practitioner, but also I became an NDT speech instructor for several years. So I would go into the eight-week NDT course and I would teach the speech week. My background is in working in also hospital-based programs, special needs preschool. For the last 25 years, I've had an early intervention practice. So working with kids zero to three and also three to five. So I've had a gamut of different kinds of experiences. But going for NDT training really opened my eyes to how you can work as an SLP in the realm of looking at the body and how much information that can give you relating to speech and respiration and feeding issues. I guess in the late 70s, I worked at a United Cerebral Palsy and I met a therapist there named Ingrid Charnuda. She was a physical therapist from Austria, and she was an NDT coordinator instructor, meaning that she could teach the eight-week NDT course. And she was just an amazing person to watch in terms of her movements and how she related to the children. And somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s, she began hearing about new theories about typical development. There is a perception action, dynamic systems, and she began to kind of reformulate what her thoughts of were, how movement is organized, and how we as therapists can intervene with that movement. And she developed an approach that she called TAMO, which was the Charnuta approach for movement organization that over the years has become perception action approach based on theories, based on other writings. And I became somebody who taught with Ingrid and I just loved the approach it just made a lot of sense as charlene will get into and we'll get into later there are a lot of concepts about perception action that just make a lot of sense for me as a speech language pathologist it just gave me answers as to why children who had cp or down syndrome or other developmental delays might also have feeding issues and oromotor issues and speech issues because it's all related to movement So as you'll learn today, Perception Action has some different concepts and different ways of working with the children and adults that give us more information so we can help them learn strategies of how to use their body better. And certainly for me as an SLP, that impacts how effective I can be to work on feeding, oral motor, speech, respiratory things. So I love what I do. It's just... You know, I'm very fortunate to be in this Institute for Perception Action. We have an incredible group of practitioners that are bright, that are dedicated and passionate about what we do.
1: Amazing. So, y'all probably don't know me from Adam. So, like the 30 second snapshot is I went to graduate school while I worked full time as a speech teacher in the public schools in Virginia. I had a bachelor's degree in speech pathology. So, I was doing three to 12 year olds working with that age range, all different etiologies. Then uh graduated with my master's, worked at a rural country hospital where they've never had a full-time SLP. So I had to learn all of it. I treated ICU med surge in the morning, outpatient in the afternoon for infants to end of life palliative care. Then we came to South Carolina and I got into early intervention, which I honestly didn't want to do. And then I like loved it and I love it. Mm -hmm. I left, I ended up opening my own private practice in EI, then left to go serve as the clinic coordinator for the grad SLP program at Francis Marion University. And established the very first pediatric feeding and swallowing clinic at a graduate school level in all of South Carolina. And then no matter what we did to try to get additional faculty and help, we could not. So I walked away because mental health and time with my family is first. And so, yep. So after 18 months of doing that, I was like, I'm ready to do something different. So I published my book in that time, "Chasing the Swallow: Truth, Science, Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders." It's all about IPE for improved patient outcomes for feeding, and then came back to I, I sought out Irene Ingram, who is an OT here in the South that's very well known for her reflex integration models and treating holistically. Irene is a brilliant human and I sought her tutelage. So I worked under her for 10, 10 months because I wanted her to mentor me. Like I wanted to grow folks. If you were listening, this is when you have an opportunity in your life to be a sponge, take it, take it, take it, take it because you don't know what you don't know. And this woman taught me so much. And then my husband's career went boop with travel. So I had to find something home so I could take the kids back and forth to school because First time a mom, and um, complete with boogers on her couch and random points and times of the week. <laughs> but like, <laughs> yay! And so I see patients, at home health intervention with a phenomenal company, and uh, I teach the pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders class at the graduate SLP level here in town at um, University of South Carolina. So I'm adjunct there, and then guest lecture and volunteer all over, but. That is my crazy walk. I, in case you didn't notice, have a little bit of ADHD, just a little, and um, anxiety. So like, it's a great combination of, I'm going to overanalyze everything. So you have a very good energy. Yes. (laughs) This and we—I already did four miles this morning with my husband and got Botox, and I'm still this hyper. (laughs) So, like, good God!
2: Sounds (laughs) like you found the balance that works for you professionally, personally, and family life. So, yes, we're
1: God help us, we're We're trying. But that's my career in a nutshell. Just so you kind of know, like, what I look at. But what I have found is, as speech pathologist, grad school still hardly ever have an even optional class for pediatric feeding and swelling disorders. It's really truthfully just an elective at U of SC. And most programs embed it like one or two nights into their dysphagia class. So our colleagues are coming out of college with a master's degree and it barely scratches the surface of the complexities. And very rarely do they get taught within the curriculum how to engage with colleagues and what other colleagues' scope of practices are and what they're doing. So we get out and we start treating, and we don't know what we're looking at when the PT steps in the room and starts like twisting and turning a baby all around, and you put them on a ball and they're moving, and it's like, what is happening? I remember an OT doing that one time, and I was thinking, oh my God, they're gonna bounce that baby's head off. <laughs> They didn't. Paul did not. He's great. (laughs) But like to a novice clinician, you're like, what the hell is going on right now? So like when we come to these kind of moments where we get to learn, that's where most of us are coming. We don't have a clue what it is that we're looking at. So what is perception action approach and how did this come to be? Can I just say something before
3: we get into that? You know, I think there are a couple of things that you said, Michelle. One is that we're lifelong learners and I know I've taken so many courses as a speech pathologist. It wasn't written in my bio, but I've taken courses in cranial sacral and something called zero balancing. Because once you have the door opened, it is important to take advantage of what's offered to you. Yes. The other opportunity that I had from my first job was working closely with PT and OTs. And a lot of my closest friends are PTs just because we, are able to collaborate. I still continue to learn. I learn from them every day. I think they learn from me also. So it's just an amazing feel to have that kind of interaction. So even to give those of you who are listening as SLPs the permission to go out and look for some of these other approaches and not to be afraid to collaborate with people on your teams or in your sites that could for you additional help or information that round out what you're doing in
1: terms of treatment. Isn't it funny that we need permission to go there though? Like as a human, it feels better when somebody was like, but that's okay. That's normal. You should be a lifelong learner, but that just giving that permission, you give grace. It's like, yes, yes,
2: yes. In my journey, I found that sometimes when I get this new knowledge and it doesn't fit into the boxes that I've learned before, It feels very destabilizing. I know after we took our eight-week NDT course at Tucson Medical Center, we wanted to take the week baby course, advanced course, and we'd heard about Ingrid Charnuder, and so we said, well, we'd like her to come. And he, she called and said, well, I could. And she had her Austrian accent. Then well, I could give you the things that is an NDT, or I could give you other things that aren't without that piece of paper if you want newer things. And we said, oh, yeah, give us the new stuff. We don't care. <laughs> so she came, and what she taught us completely destabilized us. We had, and I think as lifelong learners, we have to make a choice our whole life to feel destabilized over and over and over, because it's easy to know what I know and do what I do. And that feels really good because you feel competent and you've got the answers. But when you start adding in other things that don't quite fit in that box, it can make you very uncomfortable. And getting uncomfortable with that destabilization is really important as a lifelong learner. And with the children that we see, if a child has a certain way of doing something, whether it's sitting or breathing or eating, and we are seeking to allow some changes in that way, that child's going to feel destabilized and feel like this isn't what I usually do. And so if we're expecting our children to go through this process, then we need to give ourselves the grace and allow the place to be comfortable being a little uncomfortable it with new knowledge.
1: You just described my 10 year old because he still writes like this with his left hand. And I'm like, nobody, we paid for all that OT. He's like, but my hand likes this. And I'm yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: yes. Uh-huh. So, the perception action approach, you know, grew out of Ingrid Charnuter looking at perception, reading things in ecological psychology on perception particularly Gibson had a lot of, of writings that are not new about perception. And, you know, OTs, they always were way ahead. They are, they knew about perception. And as a PT, I was like, oh, yeah, the OTs do that kind of perception stuff, and I'll do the muscles. <laughs> but she started saying, well, you know, perception guides what we do, and perception isn't a single channel. Perception is what you take in from all your senses and then you make sense of it and then it creates an opportunity for an action which then gives you more perceptual information so it took me a while to even you know understand what those words meant and then she started pulling in dynamic
1: systems and oh, I have a question right out the gate. When you say perception, like I'm thinking depth perception because like I have glasses and contacts and I negative five two five in each eye. If my glasses fall off the nightstand, I won't see where they are to put them back on. Right. But so I'm thinking like depth perception, how far I have to reach or like, is it like auditory, like the acoustics of the sounds, like where my body is in space, like proprioception, interception? those kind of we have all of those sensory channels, input.
2: and it makes this sensory soup that we're, you know, that we're experiencing that we're just kind of living in. And sometimes you pay attention, you know, to the buzz of the light. And sometimes you don't because your foot itches or, you know, so you have these sensory soup that we're living in. And perception is the brain making sense of all of that. I love that. And then you can choose your actions to act on that. So, you know, I had taken a lot of sensory integration courses. And just because I were with OTs that encouraged me to, as you said, Eileen, but the thought of perception being almost as part of us as breathing. And then what makes sense? What's the salient or the important features of the sensory information that's going to help me make the most efficient movement, whether it's Suck, swallow, breathe, whether it's reaching, whether it's sitting down or standing up. It guides everything that we do. Eileen?
3: Well, I was going to say the other part to that is Ingrid looked at how do we initiate movements. Movements don't only come from the brain, they come from environmental situations also. For example, it comes from how your body is on a surface. So if you're sitting and you're you go to reach for something, you have to do something at the point where your body reaches the surface. So if I'm sitting and I go to reach, I have to push down with my hips and my sit bones and my thighs in order to come up. So if we walk, for example, you use your whole foot, but you also have a force going down and back to propel you forward. So Ingrid also looked at some of these external factors that help us organize movement. And for example, if you look at little babies, they have a lot of spontaneous movement. They have a lot of variation and variability in their movement. They're always moving. They're trying to get things. And as Charlene said, the more they're moving, the more information they're picking up from their environment with regard to where their body is on a surface, where their legs are. If their arms touch their legs, they're getting the relationship of different body parts to each other. And if we think about a lot of the children that we work with, they don't do
1: that. They're container babies. That's what I've heard them referred to as we stick them in a container, we give them a toy, and then we walk away because 21st century parenting is devastating. Right, not, so that's justifying, it's not right or wrong, it's just, this is our reality. But if
3: you take that even further, you think about what these children are not getting, they're not getting information to their bodies about where their bodies are in space. If they're laying on their back, what does their back feel like on the surface? If they're on their bellies, are they able to push into the surface with their forearms and hands, with their chest to give them that feeling of pushing into the surface? So when we look at our children, our children, some of the children who have lower muscle tone might sink into the surface, and the children who have higher muscle tone almost pull away from the surface. So the information that they're getting from their environment is extremely limited, and for them to be able to initiate an action with using the surfaces and their bodies in relationship is where they have difficulty. And that's where perception action comes in, because one of the things we look at is how can we change some of these external situations to help our children learn strategies of how to move better?
1: Okay. So on top of all the other things that I'm doing, I should not be rubbing my face. They just put the Botox in. What is wrong with me? Oh, (laughs) okay. On top of everything else, that's that's my go-to is I'm a sensory seeker on top of. All over the other hats. I am also serving as the topic chair for the pediatric feeding and swallowing disorder track for ASHA this year, right? So we're, it is, I'm processing this through a series of filters in my head. And one of the filters was back in December, we had Dr. Georgia Melandrecki on from Purdue. Dr. Georgia Melandrecki, she's an ASHA fellow. We were doing an ethics episode for pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. With her, Dr. Memory Goza, who is the chair of the University of Alabama, and Donna Edwards, who sits on the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders and the board-certified specialist in swallowing disorder boards, right? Brilliant, empowering women. And Dr. was her background, it does research on eating and drinking across the lifespan. Some of her most recent researches on the motor planning and how our motor planning patterns, what we originally thought mastication patterns were when I was in grad school, like I was taught in grad school, the rotary chew pattern had to be fully established by 48 months. And that's why we had to do all of these non-speech oral motor exercises And then with the evolution of neuroimaging and the evolution of research, Dr. Malindraki came out when she was shared in some of her research that non-speech oral motor exercises are not actually doing what the body needs it to do because you're not teaching the motion in conjunction with the bolus. You're teaching the motion in isolation. And children that have cerebral palsy, this is one of her passion areas of research, we don't need to strengthen their muscle because what we're seeing is tone. They have increased tone in the spasticity as well as a variation in upper motor neurons. And so it could be two totally different tones that you're having to look at. And so if you're looking at what the lower body is doing versus what the, the face and the neck are doing, those are two different tones. And literally, y'all are like the perfect extension of those conversations because it was just like... This is wonderful. I am so happy. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I, think, and I have to
2: say, you know, you hear from the speech therapist talking about walking and talking about sitting and talking about, you know, I talked about the perception part, and then the action part is taking that information and working against the physical forces that we have to, to, to do anything, which is our support surface and gravity. If we can't push into our support surface efficiently, to stay upright against gravity, if you don't have the rest of your body working, then how can you chew and swallow? And the speech therapist in these courses is like, you mean I can look at the hips? I can look at the feet? Yes. Yes, yes. Yes. Okay.
1: The analogy that I give is we have all been there after one too many hot toddies and tried to get down from the tall table at the bar, and it's not going to be your graceful exit strategy. That's what this is like. We have to build them on a firm foundation. Okay. Eileen, I cut you off. I'm so sorry. What were you going to say? I don't remember.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The senior moment, it
1: kind of comes and goes.
2: (laughs) What Ingrid did was really brilliant because she had this, you know, wealth of knowledge about movement analysis. And what she had told us is I kept treating these kids and when my hands were on them, they looked great. But then they leave and they couldn't sustain it. They didn't take it home with them. They weren't learning it for themselves. So when her husband was a physicist and so she would talk about, <laughs> about about the physics, about force generation, about where you have to have contact to generate force and and the force distribution and the pressure and the right amount of force, not too much, not too little, in order to move against gravity. And then she paired it with the writings of that she read about from gibson and esther thielen that had to do with perception and then she started reading about dynamic systems where back then no one knew what that was but it was the Lorenz's article that that talked about the butterfly you know flapping their wings in south america causing the tornado somewhere else about how a little bit of change or a little bit of difference in the system whether it's weather your nervous system, your body, it's not linear, it can make a huge change. And that's what percent, what she tapped into is a little bit of a specific type of handling input, a little bit of environmental adaptation, and then allowing the child to learn it themselves made for a change that the child could go home and repeat and practice over and over. And from the neuroscience now, we know that in order to learn, to do any kind of learning, but particularly any kind of motor learning, you need it to be salient or important to the child. It has to be self-generated, not facilitated. And it has to occur over and over and over again. And she pulled all these thoughts together. And any one of them we can pick apart and go, wow.
3: Yeah, we just taught a class in New Jersey. We're in the middle of it. It's a five-day class. And one of the things we were talking about is when you have dynamic systems, a change in any one of those systems can have an impact in other areas. So I have examples of a little boy that came to me for feeding issues that when I looked at him had very limited movements. He couldn't move out of prone on his belly, he couldn't move out of supine, he couldn't sit by himself. So in one session, even just working, using our manual guidance, our light touch, and giving him information down through his hips, through his trunk, he was able to sit up straighter, his mouth was closed, he wasn't drooling anymore. So by me simply working on his body to give him information about where his body was in space, how he could change some weight distribution through his hips and his sit bones. All of a sudden, he could sit up better. His head was better aligned. He could sit by himself, but resulting in I get better or a motor because he can grade his jaw, he can get lip closure, he doesn't drool, he has more access to his tongue movements, even breathing. He was a child that would vocalize on an inhalation like a... So that's not really efficient for him. So by looking at some of these things that we can affect as therapists, the contact with the surface, how a child can exert a force down, how they're able to use their body parts on the surface, just by changing one thing, looking at the environment, maybe there's a way we can set up the environment also to make it easier for a child to reach for something or to do something or even what we're asking them to do. Every task has a different set of actions. If you pick up a dime from the floor, as opposed to if you pick up a box or a table, your body has to be able to adapt to these different situations. And a lot of our children are not able to be adaptable that way. So for us as clinicians, by changing even one aspect of it, that's where the dynamic system theory comes into play Because if we affect a little change, you see it in lots of other areas.
1: So my new student started Tuesday last week. Every semester I have a clinical intern for like the duration of the term. And I love it because they ask really good questions and it gets you excited again, right? To like be a professional. And we had this past week, we had that cutest little bug. She came in, she has Down syndrome. She's six months, been exclusively breastfed. Nursing latching like a champ. I'm also a CLC, so I sometimes my hats overlap. And you know, she's she's in the south. She's got a bow as big as her face, right? <laughs> so like, she's got this great big bow on a band, and like, it's just the cutest <laughs> thing in the world. I don't know how her head holds the thing up. But mom wanted to start working on, you know, getting her to start her purees, and she was like, "Well, she's you know, her tongue sticks out all the time," and I'm like, "Well, we got two factors here." One, her tongue should be out because when we're latching, our tongue goes anterior, then it compresses its anterior, posterior, it's serving a purpose. You are well within your time for that anterior tongue reflux to get integrated. Like we're in our window. She's learning. She's continuing to expose. And she mom got excited and was like, okay, I want her to start cup drinking. And I was like, well, we're not quite there because one of the prerequisites to like Open mouth cup drinking is like we got. I wish y'all could have seen. Charlene's eyes were like, holy oh cat. I mean, like baby girl is going into extension like a pop rocket, you know. And I'm like explaining to mom. I'm like, this is why we needed to get PT, and this is why we would also. This would be an excellent opportunity to pull OT in. And so, within 24 hours, we had the OT referral, which I've been advocating for for like a while. But we're there now, right? And trying to explain to my students, she was like, but don't we work on cup drinking? And I'm like, that is the perfect question. Yes, we do. But I know that I don't know what the OT and the PT know, although I might be signing up for this class after i <laughs> finish filing the <with> taxes. <laughs> uh, and by May, I will. I was like, we need them to work in conjunction with us. Because right now, if we were to put a cup in our hand, one, she couldn't orient to reaching for the cup it would fall everywhere. And if by chance she got it up there, we would drown ourselves in the process of going into extension. I was like, so she's got to be able, we have prerequisites and those skills are, are there for a reason. But then we have to take it back to also certain ideologies have their own unique timelines that should also be respected as well and honored and setting, yes, these are our global development norms. Also y'all, again, I reiterate, The speech therapy CDC norms, not a single speech pathologist, was consulted in their makings. Please see ASHA's article and position statement on the CDC norms. So please don't adhere to the CDC speech therapy guidelines for pediatric development. But Down Syndrome Society has killer norms for children that have Down Syndrome. So I'm not sure. They said that. Did y'all see the CDC norms for speech pathology when they updated them? I haven't seen them recently. They said that we should have our first words by two. Oh. <laughs> Y'all couldn't see the eye rolls. But I mean, like casually, we went from two word combos at two to like, they just need like 20, 25 words by two. And
2: there's no crawling needed in the, the guidelines.
1: We don't need contact with knees and hands. We can no. tripod crawl. <laughs> It'll be fine. Okay, I digress. Okay, so like, what kind of patients would benefit from this? Like who should be receiving and looking at this. Well, I want Is
2: to plug though I will answer that, but I want to plug that Eileen has taught classes called Hips to Lips. <laughs> that yes! that Perfect. you know it's go below the neck, look and see what's down there and what's happening there for all of us, but particularly for, you know, SOPs who may not did not have that permission. And then I was at a combined sections for the PT association meeting, and Cole Galloway, who started the Go Baby Go, which is early mobility in little cars that drive around for kids that, that because by you know nine months kids should be moving. So he's got this national program. He's a PT that studied here at University of Arizona, but I, he was talk giving a talk similar to what we're talking about now. And he said, so we've got speech baby, and we've got fine motor baby, and we've got gross motor baby, but who's driving the effing bus? <laughs> <You know>? Yes! <laughs> and, you know, he said it in a national <laughs> meeting, but he said it's, we've chopped, artificially chopped up our babies, our children, our adults into our disciplines. And what I really love about Michelle, how you're promoting, you know, what we can learn from each other and how we must look and share some of our knowledge in order to be, you know, as as helpful as we can for our clients.
1: Yes. Can you please introduce me to this lovely man for Go Baby Go, who also drops the F-bomb? Because I would be honored to have him on the podcast as well to talk about maybe not the F-bomb, but definitely Go Baby (laughs) Go. Uh, I think he's in the Southeast,
2: so you might be at at North Carolina. Okay, excellent.
3: Just to also bring in the idea of cognition and language learning, you know, in the approach that we use and with several studies that have been conducted by people that have had a background in perception action, they've done studies where they've looked at sitting behaviors in children and how that changes and how that affects cognition and problem solving. A lot of our children that don't move also have cognitive deficits and this difficulties in learning because they have limited interaction with their environment. So it's not only for feeding, for oral motor, but cognition and learning also is fostered by having children learn how to sit better, how to reach from sitting, how to get into crawling positions, how even to be on their bellies and be able to push up and shift their weight and reach for something. So cognitive skills and learning and interaction with the environment and play is also fostered by all this. And the beauty of this approach is that sometimes you don't know what effects you're going to see. Things can change in lots of areas just by you changing one simple factor.
2: Yes. And you're referring to Stacy Doosing and Reggie, Regina
3: Harbour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah.
2: Those are two yes. things that people are looking for things to read about, too. This can be used with anybody who has a nervous system and a brain and is interacting with gravity and support surfaces.
3: So all of the above. (laughs) Yeah. One of the physical therapists and I are actually working with a 56-year-old gentleman who has cerebral palsy. He's wheelchair-bound, very limited. But even at his age, we are making changes in him in his ability to sit up, to use his breath support, to maintain his speech. It's really been wonderful for us to see that this approach has uses even for somebody who's a lot older.
1: My husband has an older brother who has microcephaly, CVI, autism spectrum and CP and he always laughs because he's like my Buddha is getting bigger and then he pats his belly and but he's like he's you know my husband's 44 and Maddie's 45 and Maddie's shoulders are starting to round a little more and he's gotten more sedentary because my in-laws retired so everybody's gotten a little more sedentary I mean pandemic life but I'm sitting here thinking about watching him. And when you're talking about like subtle changes, y'all have witnessed firsthand how if you just systematically move how a patient's tray is set up or add color codes, like say, like for Matthew has a cortical vision impairment. He exploded the microwave one time because he hit the potato button instead of the popcorn button. Right. Mm-hmm. And so little changes for them, particularly they put, you know, there's mylar balloons that glitter, they got a sticker, a star red, a red star Mylar balloon glitter sticker and put it on the popcorn button and he could see it. He could discern it on the white microwave. And now so we it's
3: environmental modification for yes. success.
1: Yes. And which garnered his independence, which garnered his confidence, which changed how he walked and he felt better about himself.
3: You just described a dynamic system. You change one little piece and you see things all the way down the road.
1: Isn't it beautiful?
3: Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we aim to do with our manual guidance, which is light touch that gives information to the child in terms of how to pick up their own perceptual information from the surface and from their environment. And if you saw and felt our touch, you'd be surprised at how light it is. But it's helping the child pick up information about their bodies, relating to the surface, relating to where their weight distribution is in their body, how to change points of contact with the surface so that they can initiate a movement. And one of the things that Ingrid always said is it's not so much about muscle tone, it's how you organize your movements using these forces of gravity using the contact with the support surface. So sometimes you see kids that have very high tone and are very locked into positions or very low tone, but they're not organizing their movements using the contact with the surface. So by us going in and and suggesting to them different ways to make their bodies have contact with the surface, you can see a change in how they're organizing movements And sometimes what you think is really high tone can change because it's coming from their inability to use the environment to move.
1: Okay. So in my head, I'm creating a scenario where I've been in patients' homes and they're doing like tummy time for an infant, but they're on like... A shag carpet, but it's got different colors within the carpet, and there's like different fabrics. I don't like shag carpets. They're beautiful, but they like even make <laughs> you like you're, you're cringing. You're physically. I, I know <laughs> it just it's not you don't. I don't want to touch that like that and that sand that's like not sand, and then it's like it's that is not a natural substance. But <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have sensory aversions. Hello, but. I've seen how like, you know, the OTs and the PTs have recommended when the child was under extreme duress and they're like, this is really an important thing for them. Why don't you put down the spit up cloth? And so it's a predictable surface pattern on the child. Instead of having to touch the funky shag carpet, they had like a soft muslin on top that was a consistent texture and it was like it alleviated the stress on the child So the child wanted to do, that's what it looked like on the outside. So like, I'm thinking of that as like an environmental modification. I mean, am I like on track here or am I like in left field? No, and
2: anything like that is important to take into consideration. And I think what we talk about when we talk about support surface is that physical barrier that you're talking about or that physical, but also what parts of your body are in contact with that surface. And how do you push into that surface in order to move? So if I had you sitting there where you are now, and I'm going to ask you to to stand up, but don't push into your feet or arms. So stand up. Wait. Okay, stand up. Don't push into a surface. Oh, I can't do it. My legs
1: were laid out on the other chair.
2: (laughs) You can't. And that's kind of the physics of this. Support surface against gravity, part of perception action is you have to push in to something in order to move. You can't levitate yourself into standing. And when kids are pulling away from the surface, they're not pushing into the surface. They're not getting the information of where do I push in, the outside of my foot, the inside of my foot. You push into the surface differently if you're in high heels than if you're in bare feet. And so when we talk about surface, we're talking about using that to generate force for efficient movement.
1: When you were talking about the first video that popped in my mind with the cute chubby babies that they try to put them in the grass and how their legs go up because they're not touching the grass. That was what like, I was like, they are the children that are trying to levitate away from that. But like, okay, so then. Well, it's
3: like, if, Michelle, if you wanted to try to stand up taking what Charlene said a little further. If you try to stand up now in your chair, see if you can stand up and feel what your feet do when you have to stand up.
1: My right ankle rolls every time because I always put my tiptoes down first and my right ankle rolls and then I favor my busted knee. Okay. And what do your feet
3: have to do in order for you to stand up?
1: They have to get out of the comfy cozy chair next to me and touch the surface.
3: Oh, okay. Well, I was going to ask you if if you crunched your toes up and try to stand. Well, if you crunch both your feet and your toes and you try to stand up now, can you do it the same way?
1: It's different. It feels different.
3: Right. Because your feet are all crunched up. They don't have this full surface of your bottom of your feet onto the surface of the floor. So it's hard to get that force pushing into the surface for you to stand up.
1: I'm all now also now hyper aware that like maybe my injuries have not healed the way that they I thought they had. We <laughs> don't want you to
2: hurt yourself, but you oh no, those are out of the chair many times during the day, and in order to do that, you have to exert force into your support surface.
3: Right for us for speech, Michelle, this is even better. If you sit in front of your chair, like sit to the front and round your pelvis back. Now, what happens to your chest and your head as you're rounding back?
1: It naturally falls forward.
3: See, I go back, like I become like a C curve almost because my whole back gets rounded because I have my weight. So even if you think about what that kind of posture does for respiration, that it's limits inhibiting. it. Away. Right, but now if you take your pelvis And you're pushing down through your pelvis. All of a sudden, what happens to your trunk and your head and your neck?
1: My husband would say I have laser nipples because that's how he describes to the boys because he was army, right? So when my oldest son rolls his shoulder down because he's got low tone like his mama, my husband's like, laser nipples, baby, laser nipples. He perks (laughs) them suckers right up and like (laughs) pretends to shoot things. But I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that, Q, but like I laser nippled. Like my back is straight. Yeah, but where did up. it
3: come from? It didn't come from your back. It came from it came your, from your, your base. right? That's why we teach a course called Hips to Lips. Cause what you see at the hips is what you get at the lips. <sighs>
1: Literally, they talk about lip to hip in the CLC course, how you have to align an infant when they go to latch, their lips and their hips have to be on the same plane surface. And it's called lips to hip. That's why I laugh because you're, but you're yeah, talking a different, little different concept, but it's hips to lips. Yes. But it's like, but like when, if, if you don't have them angled, right. And they're their right. lips are latched on, but their hips are rolling away and rounding. That's funny. Then, like we're not set for success for respiration deglutition because they're it's right. This is like literally the culmination of so many different <laughs> things in my head, and this is amazing.
2: And you know what, Michelle? This is what we keep finding. Those of us who work with this is when there are some common underlying, like foundational truths or, or I don't know, Eileen, what word I'm, I'm looking for, but, but something that you, you hear about how it applies to lactation how it applies to speech and language or how it applies to, I did some stuff with my son when he was playing little league and, and was in a hitting slump in terms of where his weight was, was shifted when he was trying to hit. When you find that these kinds of things, you know, are in all different areas, it, it keeps telling me that we're kind of on the right track.
1: Universal truths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I would describe it as—a universal truth that keeps popping up. Um, the fact that when I can't sleep, I read astrophysics for fun. So the fact that this lovely Ingrid's husband was a physicist is just like I'm like, no, I know what he, those are Isaac Newton principles. Like those are th- these are foundational. It has to do with the force
3: down and a counter force from the surface going up. In yoga, they tell you to root down. So when you root down, you come up. So it is Newton's law, an equal and opposite reaction. You have a force down. And a lot of our kids don't
1: utilize the forces down. No, but if we're not engaging our diaphragm, then they're not in the event of aspirin. Okay, back trick. Way back. Our neurodivergent children, especially individuals that truly had an anoxic event or have had a hemorrhagic CVA or an intraventricular hemorrhage or a neonatal abstinence syndrome, their respiration cycles tend to be backwards. So a true respiration pattern, um, and this is y'all, this is from the EMST, um, expiratory muscle strength training work, as well as from Beverly Manziola. She's an, actually, she's an SLP up north um, from their work. But what we know is that when we have a, a PO intake event, we have a, a sip, we swallow, there's an apneic period, exhalation, then inhalation. But we're wired that way because if we inhale after a swallow, we're going to aspirate because you know, we have the res- residue in our molecular residue in our piriform sinuses. However, our neurodivergent kids tend to have that backwards. So what happens is after that apneic period, when we should exhale, oftentimes because of whatever infarct or has occurred, they inhale. So we can't, we don't at this moment in time have a plan to fix that hardwiring, So it behooves us to strengthen their diaphragm such that when they have a cough reflex response, when they, when they have that ability to like get the bolus to exit their lungs, they can do so with force. They can do so with strength to protect and prevent an aspiration pneumonia or a pneumonitis occurring. Right. And this is why This is, especially for these kids that are so at risk. I'm like, no, we gotta have PT and OT in here because I don't know how to strengthen this core, but it is core. And the beautiful thing, like when you're talking about it, is oftentimes as we strengthen the core, the extrinsic laryngeal musculature also strengthens and the efficiency of the swallow improves. And we've had that research for like forever from that came out in the SIG13 articles. They did some pre They did a series of fluoro studies where they did a baseline swallow study for one group that was just speech only, and then a baseline swallow study for another group that did speech OT and PT, and that second group got bounced on the theraballs and had like whole regimen of workouts. Their instrumental swallow studies dramatically improved, and they had less aspiration and penetration events because we built their core.
3: So that's what we're doing. We're we're helping them build their bodies to be... Not so much stronger, but to be more organized with regard to movement. But it has lasting effects into hands, you know, upper extremity use, visual function, cognition, learning, attention span, and certainly oral motor, feeding, and respiration, and speech production. Yes. So, so it's all affected by that.
1: Okay, where do we go to find this? How do we find this? How much is it? <laughs> what What does the coursework look like? Well, you can go on the
2: the PerceptionAction.org and and go to the Institute of Perception Action website. There's webinars there. There's courses listed. COVID kind of shut down anything um, live, so we're getting up and running with that again. But taking an introduction course, looking at the webinars, and then the five-day courses where you really learn you know the meat of it, and practice, and and on each other, and practice with with children, and get some fabulous lectures from the instructors.
1: I can afford these. <laughs> yes, guys, and- it's, it's great prices. Do they now? Next question, because you know the SLPs are going to ask this: Are the courses SLP or like ASHA or AOTA certified?
3: Well, I'll be honest. We have not applied to be an ASHA provider because it's rather expensive. However, that being said, I've spoken to ASHA several times. Once you complete a course and you go and you complete a survey and a post-test, you get a certificate. That certificate can be used for ASHA CEUs. So just you can make. You can include that because it's appropriate for your professional practice. So I've been in contact with ASHA three or four times, and you can use that certificate to put as part of your 30 CEUs.
1: Excellent. If you
2: just want to learn more, look at the website, read the concepts, read what we're about. There's a couple articles in there to read, and that's all free. And that just kind of leads you to oh, well, then I should read this article or I should I could look at, at this to get kind of just some foundational information.
3: And we're also starting, Michelle, to do um, courses again. So if anybody's interested in hosting a course, you know, we have a day and a half intro course where you just learn some of the concepts. We have a five-day class where you actually, as Charlene said, learn the concepts. There's a lot of labs. You actually do treatment. And we can do that as a five-day in a row or we're doing it as two days with didactic, with the initial lectures, and then a second three days, maybe a month later, where you bring in children and you actually treat the children under supervision of the instructors. So you really wor- learn how to use the approach and how how to use manual guidance. And we're also in the middle of revamping Hips to Lips, which can be a one or two day class also just for speech. That's so amazing. Anybody
2: wants to host Eileen?
1: Thank <laughs> you can make for hosting. I'm going to phone a friend. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. I'm looking back at our questions. Is there anything that I haven't covered or how can they reach you? What are y'all thinking?
3: Well, in terms of reaching us, Charlene, you mentioned the website. Mm-hmm. So they can look at the website, send yeah, us an email. Website,
2: you can also put an inquiry in, into the website. Um, and if you wanted to reach me directly, you could email me at frigosi F R E G O S I, Charlene, C H A R L E N E, at gmail.com.
3: Beautiful. And for me, you can reach me at Eileen, I L E N E, B Like Boy, Sperling S. P E R L I N G at gmail.com.
1: Beautiful. Ladies, I have one last question. If somebody is listening and they have my grandma's love money lying around, if they got a little love money lying around, where can they donate it to? How can they support?
2: Well, we have, you can donate on the website. You know, our goal is to try to produce as many courses as we can, to have courses available for therapists. You know, we got started and then, you know, COVID kind of got things shut down. So we would love to have any love money, any donations so that we can have the infrastructure to offer as many courses as we can.
3: And we are a nonprofit organization also, just for people to know if
1: they make a donation. Mm -hmm. And it's via PayPal and PayPal surprised me this year because I had made some little love money donations and I got an email from PayPal at the end of the year that like told me like what you can like access what your donations are like you can get like a both of y'all are like what so you can go on PayPal and they'll give you a PDF spreadsheet so I could send that to my lovely tax man. Who always reminds me you have to remember these things, Michelle? Hey, sir. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and then my Perfect. husband's like, "Perfect, hey, thank help. you." <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, Eileen, um, Charlene, thank you with my whole heart. Thank you so much for coming on today, And folks. Thanks for having
2: us, this is fun. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <It is fun.
1: laughs> <laughs> everybody's so funny. They're always so nervous when they start, and I'm like, I'm like, no, this is nothing. This is joy. Yes. Folks, you know, we love it when you hop on First Bite podcast on Instagram and join us there because I'll post about what upcoming courses we are. And I'm hoping by time this releases will have been well on. We're planning on doing Instagram live scheduled throughout the year with ongoing organizations and research labs to like expedite research to practice. Those folks will not count for CEUs, but just good old growth of your profession and laughter. But um, reach us there. And you know, I love it when you hit us up on uh, First Bite Podcast on Apple and leave a kind review and uh, five stars. That's always much appreciated. And that's it. Ladies, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Feeding Matters and as always remember feed your mind feed your soul be kind and feed those babies Hey, So it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 Convention my financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the master's of speech language pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from SpeechTherapyPD.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy. But those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out.
0: All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely.